Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Judy Langhans from the Office of Professional Nursing in the Center for Continuing Education. Thank you for joining us for this special session of Nursing Grand Rounds. I'd also like to welcome anyone who is viewing this session online. Just a few housekeeping details. Please be sure to sign in on the attendance sheet, which is out in the hall today. And you must attend at least 80% of the program to receive credit. For those viewing online, please email me with any questions you may have during the presentation. And to receive credit, be sure to email me within one hour after the presentation stating you participated in this educational activity online. Include your name, degree, and your zip code. My email address is judith.mlanghands at hitchcock.org. Um, everyone will receive a link to an online evaluation within 24 hours. The Center for Continuing Education values your feedback and hopes you take a few moments to fill out the evaluation. Your contact hour will be posted on your online transcript within one month. There are instructions on how to access your online transcript out by the sign-in sheet or you can contact me. And finally, please silence your cell phone or pagers. Our presentation today is entitled Overcoming Stigma, Strategies for Health Professionals, and our speaker is Gretchen Graponi. Gretchen works as a clinician at a community mental health center in New Hampshire. Ms. Graponi previously worked as a social worker on an inpatient behavioral health unit as a researcher and trainer at the Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center and worked as a trainer and consultant for Atlas Research on their Homeless Veteran Supported Employment Pro Program project. Ms. Graponi received her master's in social work from the University of New Hampshire. In graduate school, she focused her research in writing, research and writing on the effects of stigma on treatment-seeking behaviors. After graduate school, she expanded her research to focus on mental health stigma among health professionals. Ms. Graponi co-authored a book chapter and has also written about her experience with depression for the Journal of Mental Health. She is currently writing an overcoming stigma guide geared towards students studying to be health professionals. She currently serves as a mental health professional representative on New Hampshire's protection and advocacy for individuals with mental health mental illness advisory committee. Neither our speaker nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity and no one refused to disclose. Please join me in welcoming Gretchen. Uh, can you hear me okay? Okay. Um, um, so thank you for coming. And um, I usually do a fairly interactive um, program. So those of you who chose to sit in the back, I think you have loud voices. <laughs> All right, so that's first slide. So um, just to quickly go over what the goal, my goal for you is, um, and then some of, the, some of the objectives of today. I hope that you leave here today a little bit better prepared to effectively identify stigma when it's happening and also have some ideas of how to effectively overcome stigma when you, when you see it. Um, so the objectives, you're going to be able to hopefully describe several different types of stigma, um, have a better idea of some of the effects of stigma on health professionals patients and their family members. And then finally, you're going to know some effective strategies for overcoming stigma from the research. 
Does anyone else have any other goals that they want to add to the program today? Okay. Okay, so introductions. Um, Judy told you all about me, so I don't have to say too much. Um, so I've done a whole bunch of things in the field of mental health. Um, I currently work as a therapist with adults. Uh, I do short-term outpatient treatment, mostly CBT, that sort of thing. Um, but before my distinguished career, um, I was also a college dropout. Uh, due to a severe depression, I lived on SSDI for several years. And I've had pretty much every depression treatment known to humankind. Um, probably some that you haven't even heard of. Um, so I say that I'm not going to focus too much on myself, don't worry. Um, but when we get into the effective, <coughs> effective strategies or effective interventions for stigma, it becomes important that you know that I have overcome depression. So introductions, where are you all from in terms of what type of nursing do you do? I know you're from the VNA. What other types of nurses? Adult ICU care management. Nice. Uh, care management, I work on placement of patients that need to go to a lower level of care. From which unit? Uh, the whole hospital. Oh, wow, okay. So we frequently deal with um, facilities that don't want to take patients because of substance abuse. Yep. About right. Talk about that. Uh, any other? I'm actually a social worker. I work in our outpatient oncology. Great. I'm, I'm a physician. I'm one of the pediatric geneticists here. And I'm a regional educator for high-risk obstetrics and newborn intensive care. So our focus at the moment is the issue of opioids and pregnancy. Awesome. Great. Excellent. Did I get everyone? To policy. <laughs> what kind of policy? Organizational policies. Oh, structural. Okay, policies. we'll get we'll get to you in a minute. Yeah. All right, <laughs> excellent. Okay, so any of the stigma research that that you read about always starts by quoting this guy, sociologist from Canada named Irving Goffman. So I figured I would start by quoting him too. Um, so he, in the early '60s, wrote a book called Stigma: Notes on the Management of Spoiled Identity, and he didn't write just about the stigma of mental illness and substance disorders. He wrote about all different kinds of stigma. stigma, And he um, describes stigma as a process that starts with someone having an attribute that's deeply discrediting. And then by having that attribute, that changes a person from a whole person or a normal person to an abnormal person or a tainted person. But a more contemporary view um, is described by Patrick Corrigan and Amy Watson. Patrick Corrigan is probably the most prolific stigma researcher in, in the context of mental health in the United States. So you'll see I, I quote him a lot, or I reference him a lot. But their definition involves three different constructs. The first one is has, there has to be a stereotype. So that's a negative belief about a person or a group of people. Prejudice is just agreeing that, yes, I agree with that stereotype. And then that ultimately results in discrimination against a person with uh, mental illness or substance disorder. Now, you didn't get handouts, did you? So, um, if at the end I, I'll put up my contact information, and if you want handouts of this, so you don't have to write furiously, um, I'm happy to email them to you in a PDF format. So, um, or I can give you a card with my information. 
Okay, so another way to look at stigma, and this actually I think might be the most effective way of describing stigma if you're trying to engage someone in a conversation. And this is by uh, Graham Thornacroft and his colleagues. Graham Thornacroft is probably the most prolific internationally known stigma researcher he's out of England. Um, but what they, how they describe stigma is, it's when, it's more, it's more gentle terms. So it's when we have difficulty with knowledge, attitudes, and behavior about mental illness or substance use disorder. So knowledge, difficulty with knowledge is just code for stereotype. Difficulty with attitudes, that's a prejudice. And then difficult behavior is the discrimination. So use whatever definition you'd like or mix it up. Uh, so now we've defined it. So now let's talk about why would why would nurses want to even address stigma? Does that even make sense? Um, the answer probably is yes. If you respect your code of ethics, the very first provision talks about respect for human dignity and how nurses have to respect the inherent worth and dignity of, of, of everyone they work with. Patients, um, but it also looks like that means with professional relationships. Does anyone disagree with that? Um, social workers, we have a similar, a similar code of ethics that says pretty much the same thing, respecting the inherent dignity and worth of everyone that we work with. Um, okay, so these are the different types of stigma we're going to kind of quickly review. There are seven, the, I, but I'll only make you memorize six. The first six are really well defined in the literature. The last one, health practitioner stigma, you'll see it mentioned a little bit in, in the um, research journals, but it's not really well defined, so I just went ahead and defined it, so I don't expect you to listen to me. Uh, okay, so first type of stigma is the most research type of stigma, it's called public stigma. It's also sometimes known as social stigma, and some people call it inactive stigma. Essentially, that's when the general population discriminates against people with psychiatric illness or substance use disorders. So some examples of public stigma. So if there's a public perception, well, there is a public perception, that people with mental illness are violent. If you have schizophrenia, I have to stay away from you because you're probably gonna hurt. Um, and if we believe that people with substance use disorders don't deserve help um, because they're morally corrupt, that'd be an example. Um, and then a lot of people uh, have the false perception that people with mental illness can't work. Now, other examples that you have heard of public stigma, something you might have heard, friends say, relative, anything come to mind? No? No? Oh, well, I think, I think what you described here are probably the overarching one. Yep. And you know, otherwise it's kind of comments on the side, but they basically fit into sure. okay. categories. Okay. You guys better be more talkative. <laughs> okay. So a, another type of stigma is called self-stigma. So this is essentially when a person internalizes public stigma. It's also sometimes called internalized stigma in the literature. Um, some examples of this. Uh, I have uh, bipolar disorder, so that means I'm worthless and I don't deserve help. Or a person with a substance use disorder might say, you know, I'm really weak because I should be able to just stop drinking on my own. I shouldn't need to ask for help. Or uh, sometimes you'll hear um, a client say, you know, during the treatment planning process, 
Well, I, you know, I'm not going to set a goal because I'm sick and you have to make decisions for me. I'm happy to say that doesn't happen much. And that doesn't fly in my, in my, uh, my office, but um, sometimes you'll hear that. Other examples of self-stigma. Things you've heard clients or patients say, kind of putting themselves down due to their illness. I'm just wondering, is that, is that actually due to their illness? However, like in some individuals. Yeah, so you, you mean like, so depression, we have negative thoughts. Yes. So is it, okay. So, really good question, and it's important to differentiate. So, if um, a common thought for someone with depression is, you know, I feel guilty or I'm worthless or something like that. Now, if the depression lifts, it's treated and it lifts, yes. but that person is still embarrassed to talk about having had a depression, and they think, you know, even though I'm better, I'm worthless because. I let myself feel that bad. That would be self-stigma, as opposed to the cognitions that depression causes. But so sometimes you don't know. Um, but they can kind of play off each other and make both worse. Um, any other examples of self-stigma? OK, so perceived stigma, another type of stigma. This type of stigma sometimes gets confused with self-stigma, but it's different because it's simply just having the belief that others have stigmatizing ideas. So, for example, I could have PTSD and not at all be ashamed of that, but I could perceive that if I talked about that um, at a job interview, I might not get the job because I would be discriminated. And you hear that a lot, um, especially uh, veterans um, trying to get jobs after they uh, come back. So the examples I came up with, I might get fired if I talk about having borderline personality disorder in my workplace, or you know, if I talk about being on Quasarel and antipsychotic medication, my friends might think less of me. Um, other examples of perceived Okay. <laughs> Any emails, Jerry? Yeah. Okay. But I, I do think that the concept of when somebody's going for a job, it often plays into how much should I tell them about absolutely. past history? Yep, absolutely. Thank you for that. Or how much do they need to know? Like, legally. Right, right. Because yeah. legally, they can't, the, the person interviewing you cannot ask. Um, but they're. Um, there has been a lot of research about stigma in the workplace, and what the research says is that most people don't disclose during um, during the job interview because they want the job. But when they do get the job, they eventually, after a year or two, I think it's like half half sixty percent of the people end up disclosing to someone just because sometimes they need to, or they just feel comfortable. They feel like, okay, I'm, I, I've shown I'm good at my job, so I'm not going to get fired. Okay, so another type of stigma is label avoidance. Um, a lot you know, generated by perceived stigma or public stigma. Uh, this is when a person just doesn't seek treatment, not because they don't want it, but because they don't want to be assigned stigmatizing So for example, well, if I go to a psychiatrist, they're going to call me nuts, they're going to call me crazy. Um, you know, I feel like I have a a drinking problem, but if I go to a substance abuse counselor, I'm going to be known as an addict. Um, what are some other labels that people might want to avoid? 
I mean, I'd just love to see the difference between females and males in that, in that regard. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I haven't seen any research on that, but um, what, why, what, what is your perception? That women are much more in, into, you know, going to a therapist or things like that. Mm -hmm. And, and the men that I know, like, <laughs> yes. that's, are yes. you kidding me? I'm not crazy. You know, right. so I have, I just have this feeling that the females would be much more apt mm -hmm. to, to, to not be so, to not think so badly right. about that. Yeah. Anybody have anything they want to say? I think sometimes in couples counseling, one person won't want to go because they're afraid they're going to be labeled the problem. Yeah. Okay. Uh, another type of stigma that probably all of us have experienced is something that's called stigma by association. Uh, Irving Goffman, that old-time Canadian sociologist, called it courtesy stigma, which I think is hysterical, kind of a cute name, sweet name. Um, but it's also um, called associative stigma, so there's a bunch of different names. But it all means that it's um, someone who's linked to a person with mental illness also feels the effects of stigma. So that could be... A psychiatrist is not really seen as a real doctor because she just works with crazy people. Um, you might know a guy who you find out, oh, his son has schizophrenia, so your automatic thought is, oh, he must not be a good father. Um, any other examples? Stigma by association. Um, structural stigma for our policy person. Structural stigma is something that you don't hear a lot about, but is an area where we could probably make a huge amount of difference if we really focused on it. So structural stigma, uh, just any type of institutional policies, any structures in society that essentially decrease the opportunity, opportunities available for people with substance use disorders. Um, a couple examples. Um, Probably heard of a college student who was hospitalized for eating disorder, depression, something like that, and then wasn't allowed back in the dorm. Um, I think it's getting better. I don't know how often that happens now, just because of laws and things. But probably private colleges need to link their own room. Um, anytime there's less funding for mental health research, mental health services, than other health conditions, that could potentially be due to structural stigma. Um, one example for me, I, after being depression-free for many years, I tried to get life insurance, and they, they found out about my depression. They said, "Oh, absolutely not! Don't even try anywhere. You'll never get, you'll never get uh, insured." So it'll be interesting with the new healthcare insurance how this changes mm -hmm. it. But I have known people in the past who, you know, did go to seek a counselor when they went through a divorce or something, and then were refused health insurance. And they said, well, I don't even want mental health insurance. It didn't matter. They yep. didn't get the health insurance. So they weren't part of a big group. They right. were like part of a, you know, they were they were buying it privately. Uh, yep. You know, and in, um, I mean, I'm in genetics, and it's rampant mm. there. And um, so many families come in and say, well, if you're going to do this testing, yeah. am I going to be labeled? And so we have to get life insurance in place and disability in place and make sure they have the health insurance and then... It, um, before we do the genetic testing, and we even have like Gina laws. You know, we have laws, but mm -hmm. I don't see it working too well um, on that side, especially for life. Um, you can't get it. Wow. Disability. So that's huge in genetics, structural stigma. Wow. 
Thank you for bringing it up. Yeah, no one has ever brought that, that issue up before. I know in terms of college students, I know at Dartmouth, and I'm assuming at other colleges too, if somebody has attempted suicide, they're out on a medical leave. They don't get to go back, even if it was more of a, what I call a gesture. So yep. they've gotten pretty hard and fast because of their worries about wow. having dangerous behavior on their campus. Right. So even like self-harming behavior is not intending to die? No. No, okay. we're talking about Okay. Okay. Wow. Now, if at Dartmouth, if you have cancer, do they kick you out? So Someone looking at aren't necessarily kicked out, but they're put in a medical. Okay. Gotcha. And I think, I think most colleges to get back from medical leave, you have to a doctor's note reapply. Okay. So health professional stigma. Again, you don't have to listen because I just made this up. But essentially. I view health professional stigma as uh, sort of an offshoot of structural stigma. Um, and I view it as any time any of us, any other type of health professional in a hospital setting or any type of healthcare setting allows the prejudices, um, thoughts, negative thoughts about people with mental illness or people with substance use disorder to somehow negatively affect a patient's care. That's how I view it. And some of the things that, that I've actually heard of, um, I won't tell you where this happened, but uh, say a, a PCP is seeing one of her patients who has borderline personality disorder, and the patient is complaining of chest pain, cardiac, cardiac pain, and the PCP says, you know what, she probably is being dramatic, that borderline's being dramatic, so I'm not going to uh, refer her for specialized cardiac care. Um, Another example, community health center has doctors certified to prescribe Suboxone, so medication-assisted opioid dependence treatment, um, but they decide that they're not going to offer that because they don't want all the junkies coming. Any other examples of health professional stigma that you might have heard of or imagined? Well, I just think that the uh, fact that people with severe mental illness on average die 25 years younger than their cohorts that do not have severe mental illness is a huge statistic. And some of it is some of the risk-taking behaviors they do, but a lot of it is that first one where they don't get good medical care. Yep, and you just stole a, a slide. Sorry. Sorry. No, it's fine. <laughs> Who did you? We seem Great. to have a lot of patients that are um, opioid users that get infections and they don't mm -hmm. want to, and there comes the dilemma of discharging them with central lines because they need long-term antibiotic use. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, it's all the time anymore. Mm -hmm. So how, how do you make a decision about what to do? Well, if we can get them to a nursing home level of care, we mm -hmm. get them to that level of care, but otherwise they're here. That's so, a, yeah, and almost never can, do they go to a nursing home level? Because, <laughs> right, you know, at the right. night time, there might be, you know, one LPN in charge, and their friend could come in and yep. take that line and shoot them up in the light, and the nursing home is liable. Yep. The B, if they go home, the BNAs are concerned about the liability. So I think. Most of the time, they stay here. Well, it used to be unusual, but now it's, it's quite significant. Yes, that's a huge amount of dollars. Oh, yeah, huge. Huge. that yeah. is huge. I mean, that that needs to change. Yeah, maybe you guys can figure out how to change it. <laughs> Seriously, hopefully, if we have time, if we have time at the end, I actually I want to spend time brainstorming with you guys. 
how how you might take some of this information back to your units. But anyway, um, okay. So now that you know all about stigma, um, I have a quote from an article, actually it's in my hometown paper, from a couple years ago. And this was an article specifically about the long wait for people who are in the ER who are waiting to get to the Andrew hospital. I'm sure you've heard about that. Um, and this ER doctor was describing mental health patients coming to the ER. So I'm going to read the quote, and then I want you to tell me if you pick up on any type of stigma that's happening in the quote. Okay, so she says, they're fragile. They can't advocate for themselves. They're trying to exist in a system, that, and the system is not serving them. Does anything jump out at you as maybe stigmatizing in that? Very well-intentioned. I mean, this is an ER doctor, and she's saying, hey, we need to help these clients. But I saw this quote, and I thought, wow, this, this is going into my presentation. They can't advocate for themselves. Yeah, exactly. Right. So that could be public stigma. That could be health professional stigma. Um, obviously, if someone is severely, severely psychotic, and you know, is not even understanding what you're saying, they're going to have a hard time advocating for themselves. But a lot of people, even when they're psychotic, can communicate. Um, so thinking of someone as being fragile, um, you, you know, you wonder. Is the doctor even going to say, here are the options, what do you want? They're so fragile that you're just going to um, Structural stigma, you know, she's talking about a system that's not working for a person with mental illness. That's good. Um, any other comments on this? I actually just did a training at this hospital where she was, and I took this quote out in case she was in the room. Um, <laughs> All right, so this uh, just, I, I am not very artistic, but I decided to make a little, whatever this is, just to prompt me to know that the effects of stigma portion is starting. Um, but hopefully, it gets the point across that, you know, stigma's in the middle and it's touching pretty much everything in our lives. Okay, so before we get into the research about the effects of stigma, I, I wanted to share a couple different quotes with you. Who knows Kay Redfield James? Anyone know her? She wrote An Unquiet Mind. So okay. Yes, I yes. read that. Yeah, probably I didn't her. realize it was her. Yeah, okay. That's a fabulous book. Yes. If you haven't read An Unquiet Mind, yeah. if, you, if you don't know a lot about bipolar disorder and you want to find out about bipolar disorder, read An Unquiet Mind. So Kay Redfield Jameson is a very uh, internationally known psychologist, researcher, expert in researching suicide and bipolar disorder, and also happens to have bipolar disorder. And her book, An Unquiet Mind, which I think was from the mid-90s, she wrote about her experience of having bipolar disorder. Um, but this quote is from a more recent book that she wrote, and that book is called Nothing Was the Same. And that's a book about, she writes about her husband died of cancer, and she compares about comparing grief to depression, what's similar, what's different. That's also an excellent book, she's a great writer, but at the beginning of that book, she talks a little bit about how um, she decided to write An Unquiet Mind, why she decided to come out as having bipolar disorder. And um, so what she says is that she kind of almost had to do it because ultimately, 
her silence, not being able to talk about having bipolar disorder, bred a quiet ugliness and set in place the conditions for unnecessary suffering. So that's pretty intense, but I mean, she's, um, you know, she's world famous researcher, knows a lot about suicide. So, um, but we also have uh, not just someone who has bipolar disorder and who's a researcher, but these, uh, these three people, well, I actually don't know Hatton Mueller, but Joe Fallon and Bruce Link are, have been researching stigma for a long time. I think they're from the Columbia School of Public Health. And the American Journal of Public Health devoted a whole issue to stigma this April of last year. And so they wrote one of the articles. And one of the quotes, or one of the sentences in the article really struck me. Um, so they said, we argue that stigma is, in fact, the central driver of morbidity and mortality at a population level. That's fairly convincing, just for me knowing, knowing the researchers. Um, but I also include the quote, and I was going to try to paraphrase this, but I couldn't figure out how to do it better than them. So I'm just going to read it word for word. So they say, so the literature on stigma has essentially exploded in the last 10 years, but its full power and significance remains somewhat obscured because bodies of research pertaining to specific stigmatized statuses have generally developed in separate domains. So I include that for a couple of reasons. One is that the slides that follow, I'm not saying that you know, they're all generalizable, that all everything I present means that stigma kills. Um, but I think that they're, they're saying there's enough evidence to say, yes, stigma can kill or can cause morbidity. Um, but also, I put that there because if, you know, this is Dartmouth, so I'm sure a lot of you are involved in research. So if you have a research project, consider adding some element, a questionnaire or something like that, uh, so that we can develop even more evidence to put it out there that stigma is something that has to be addressed. OK, so you, spoiler alert from the crowd. So, <laughs> no, that's right. So um, the life expectancy of someone with a mental illness uh, depends in terms of it being um, years and years less compared to someone without a mental illness or substance use disorder. It, some people say 25, some people say 20. Some, it depends on the data set you look at. It depends on who's being studied, obviously, the sample. Um, severe mental illness, obviously, is a uh, higher mortality rate. But um, people, even I'm seeing research now, people with anxiety disorders, which most, I think, I, that's one of my specialties, so I have to give it as severe, but I think um, when you hear the term severe, mostly people are saying it's schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Um, but anyway, so people with anxiety, maybe 10 years less, and all the way up to 25 years, depending on, like I said, which data set you look at. But it's mostly, the death is mostly due to what are preventable conditions. Um, so this study, um, reported on the leading causes of death, and I think this looked at, this is from the US, and this looked at people who were receiving treatment in public mental health systems, so community mental health centers. So leading cause of death, heart disease, second leading cause is cancer, 
um, and then cerebrovascular and respiratory and lung diseases. Um, also, accidents tend to play a, a big role in causes of death. Uh, suicides, obviously, um, are linked to mental, mental illness. I think anywhere from 20 to 30 percent of the deaths, at least in the research I've seen, um, are due to suicides. So mostly it's all, all of the things on this, on this particular slide. Um, cancer doesn't kill people with mental illness earlier. I was reading today, the, the hypothesis is, the reason for that is that most people get cancer on the average age of like 55. So potentially, personal mental illness has died before that, before you can be able to get cancer. So guess what? People with mental illness are less likely to see, receive evidence-based treatments for heart disease, stroke, asthma, and diabetes. Um, talk a little bit now about the effects of stigma in the ER. So no one here works in the ER. Um, all right, so probably though you know, a lot of people with mental illness and substance use disorders do not have a primary care physician for whatever reason. Um, so they tend, if they need treatment, they go to the ER. There's, there's a crisis, they go to the ER. So one difficulty with that is that research shows that a lot of people, ER staff is not trained in any way in any sort of and they are sometimes viewed by ER staff as disturbing other patients. Obviously difficult to treat, uh, especially if you haven't been trained in um, how to treat people with mental illness. And they're viewed as time So some very judgmental uh, views of people with mental illness and substance use disorders. Um, also, Thornacroft and colleagues argue that that actually makes sense that they would be more stigmatized in the ER because ER staff only sees people when they're in crisis. You know, I feel lucky because as a clinician, yes, I see someone and they come in, they're in crisis or they're not doing well, but I can offer them evidence-based psychotherapy and I see them get better. Even people who are, they come in, they're, they've been self-harming for many, many years, in dialectical behavior therapy. We know that works for borderline personality disorders. So, if someone does that treatment, they usually get better. So people in the ER don't see that. Just if if uh, I'm on a dialectical behavior therapy team and my client starts coming to me, usually they continue to use the ER for a while, but then treatment starts to work, and then they stop going to the ER. But the ER staff, they don't think, oh, I wonder where that person went. You know, they just um, so they don't ever get to see the good stuff. In terms of uh, diagnostic overshadowing. Has anyone ever heard of that term? So that's a term that when I did the example of a health professional stigma of the PCP not referring her, her client or her patient with borderline personality disorder for cardiac care, that's a, an example of what's called diagnostic overshadowing. So that's when we inaccurately attribute a physical or behavioral symptom to a person's mental illness rather than investigating it as another type of health condition. And so there's been a bunch of research about that, and most of the research shows that diagnostic foreshadowing is a real thing. And when I do, when I do these talks, usually there's, there's a, an MD in the audience who's going to give an example, or not even just an MD, but 
a health professional would know, yeah, I remember when this happened, and I really had to advocate for the patients to be able to get the cardiac care or whatever. Um, and also, it should be acknowledged that health providers might not even be aware of the additional health burdens that people face if they have a mental health. So this slide, it's understandable, this slide represents um, a measurement of called social distance. So this researcher, uh, Bernice Pesca-Salito, she did, this is actually pretty good um, in terms of methodology, pretty good study. She did survey research 10 years apart. So she it was a randomized survey that she sent out asking about a person's willingness to be friends with, work closely with, and marry, have a person with a mental illness or substance use disorder marry into the family. So what she found is that the, the um, results, the data from 10 years ago and then the most current data is pretty much unchanged. So the stigma, at least what she found, hasn't really changed that much in the last 10 years. Um, but what she did find in both studies is that um, the levels of stigma depend upon what your diagnosis is. So good news for me, depression, only 23% of the public wouldn't want to be friends with me. Um, about half people wouldn't want to work with me if they knew I had depression, and 42% wouldn't want me to marry into their family. So if you have schizophrenia, numbers get a bit higher, as you can see. You know, majority wouldn't want to work you if you have schizophrenia, who want you to marry into their family. And then pretty much all of the research shows that with alcohol dependence and drug dependence, that's the most highly stigmatized type of uh, illness that you can have. Obviously with drug dependence being, it's like almost everyone says, if you have a drug dependence, I wouldn't want to marry into the family. Did these numbers surprise anyone? Something that you would expect? research that says that um, the level of stigma is a little bit reduced if the person is in recovery. So thank you for bringing that up. Important um, issue to highlight. <laughs> um, no, the genetic piece with the family history. I mean, of course, schizophrenia, that, you know, there's clear genetic ties. And, I see, I see families come in with much, a lot of mental illness running through the family. And, you know, I, I didn't know if that might be the reason for some of that column. You know, do you want to marry into a family schizophrenic because your kids are going to be schizophrenic, you know? Right. I mean, it, yeah. it's clearly not 50%, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think um, it's, it's really important to have these types of conversations because there isn't probably just one, one reason why, you know, each number is as it is. Um, but obviously, and, and there's no information about um, percent unwilling for some of the co-occurring disorder, you know? So right. imagine if you had drug dependence and schizophrenia. Yeah. <laughs> but high levels are comorbidities with those. Oh, yeah, 50%. So, I mean, 50%. A lot of my patients with mental illness 
have drug and alcohol abuse. Absolutely, yep. Um, okay, so people, uh, this study showed that people with substance, substance use disorder um, are seen as being more responsible for their illness than, than people with mental illness, so that might, might explain the slide. There might be another reason why, you know, because if, if, if you're more responsible, that means there's something you can do about it, so you're, you're almost choosing to be addicted to crack. Um, and so when a person perceives the stigma, so obviously people with these illnesses can pick up on people not wanting them around, and that can actually stop people from seeking treatment. Um, this study I include because uh, I like it, and it's, it's pretty good. Um, I think it was a randomized sample survey. It is from Australia, so I don't know if you want to generalize it to the US, but usually Australia and the US have pretty similar um, data. But this was survey uh, sent asking specifically about if you had symptoms of depression, would you be embarrassed to seek treatment? So almost half of the people said, I'd be you know, too embarrassed to seek treatment to see a psychiatrist. Um, little less embarrassing to see a psychologist. Uh, a little less embarrassing than that, just to see sort of a, just a counselor. And then the least embarrassing person and the, the person that you would most likely see if you had symptoms of depression would be a primary care physician. Um, so we know that most people with depression do not seek treatment, but if they do, we know that they do go to the PCP, so that kind of would explain that. But this well, study... Can I look into, I mean, the general public in terms of education, generational issues we were talking mm -hmm. about, right. the generational yep. stuff earlier. Yep. I mean, do those studies look into those different... Um, the different reasons? Right. Um, I would think if you're... We were, I was just saying, older people, right. you know, from, say, my parents were born in the 20s, well, my father would say about depression, well, just think good thoughts. Because yeah. when he was growing up, they didn't have the medicines to treat depression, and people did have to kind of just kind of fight through it. Yep. Um, you know, or or are more educated people more open to? Yes. Yep. There is some of that. Like that. Yep. There is some of that data. Um, I can't, you know, but I can't remember if more educated people are more likely to stigmatize. I I know they break it down by education level. I just can't remember which one. But I know in terms of age. Uh, there's a study that looked at um, people uh, who are on antidepressants. So, and it found that older adults and teenagers are way more likely to discontinue antidepressant treatment if they feel stigmatized. I do know that. Um, okay, so this study looked at uh, people who were connected with PCPs who had depressive symptoms, but didn't disclose the depressive symptoms to the PCP. So even if a person seeks treatment, they might not disclose the depressive symptoms. And some of the reasons why, top reason why, was they did not want to be given an antidepressant. Uh, they were concerned about confidentiality. I love this one. They feared a referral to a counselor or psychiatrist. That, that fear, the emotion of fear is something that, that is really closely linked with stigma. Um, and then some people simply felt that PCP is not, that's not their job to deal with them. Um, 
Um, but this is a fairly striking um, study. So um, is this surprising to anyone? Because you, there's, there's such a push for integrated care. Um, but if someone isn't even willing to say, experiencing this, you know, it's great. Okay. Um, there's a lot of data out there that shows that health professionals do see people with substance use disorders in a very negative way, sometimes viewed as violent, manipulative, and motivated. Um, and so what does that do to people who use substances? Um, this study, really big sample, 1,000 people. It's not a randomized sample. So again, not as generalizable as it could be. Um, but, I, but I put it in because it's really, I think, a really interesting study. So 85% of the people who were surveyed said they do pick up on perceived stigma. They think that people who view, view them as unworthy of violence. Three quarters have been rejected by the family. And the thing that's most interesting to me, though, in this study is that rejection by the family was not associated with poorer health outcomes, but stigma, discrimination, people who reported that also had poorer health outcomes. And the, um, the researchers who did this study did a lot of um, different assessment, health assessment tools, so it wasn't just, hey, do you have bad health? It was um, standardized assessment so that they did, they did say that, yes, people who Received stigma and discrimination for health. Um, and also, that perceived stigma, thinking that people look down on you, doctors are looking down on you, or health professionals are looking down on you, is one reason that people report for dropping out of treatment. Now, I'm not going to pretend that everyone who drops out of substance abuse treatment is due to stigma. There are many reasons, but stigma. Um, I always struggle as to where to put the slide in the presentation because we have to talk about it, but it, this is a topic that could be its own grand rounds presentation. Um, but not only people with co-occurring disorders experience multiple stigmas, um, obviously people, racial and ethnic minorities, anyone who's been in the justice system, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender individuals, um, people who live in poverty, there's a lot of other stigmatized um, people. The more, and this is probably not a huge surprise to anyone, but the more stigma, the more different types of stigma that you experience, the more distress you have, and probably uh, also reduced access to resources. So I just put that in there just to kind of think about it. If you're working with a patient and they fall into any of these categories, they're probably more, more distressed than just a lucky depressed white person. Um, another study that I love. So this is a fairly small study, but worth talking about, I think. So this study looked at patients in inpatient settings in a general hospital setting. And it followed a group of patients on a psychiatric ward in a general hospital. And then it followed the same amount of patients on all the other units that were non-psychiatric. So what it found was that patients on the psychiatric unit were much less likely to receive gifts, cards, flowers, that sort of thing. Even though the average length of stay for a person on a psychiatric unit was 35 days, I think the average length of stay was seven days for a non 
non-psychiatric uh, patients. Uh, so what are your theories as to why that might be the result of this study? Patients may not tell people that they're in the hospital. Yep, and that's whenever I ask crowds, that's what they always say. Um, very interesting, and I would assume that too, but um, what this, again, small study, not generalizable, but what this study showed was that everyone, almost everyone on the inpatient psychiatric unit had told a family member that they were there. They were less likely to tell friends, so that's true, um, but pretty much across the board, um, they did tell, someone knew that they were there. hospitalized more you know, I just don't know. Is they're hospitalized more frequently, yep. and so the family becomes, yeah. you know, desensitized to the fact that they're in the hospital. Yeah. Um, I wonder how that relates to people with chronic illness who are also hospitalized more frequently. Yes, that would be a good study. It would be a good study. Yes. I have, I have a personal <laughs> comment. Um, so I, I have a son who's bipolar, and he's 20 now. But when he was in middle middle school, he was hospitalized mm -hmm. um, down at Keene. And um, first of all, it was the hardest thing I ever had to do. Uh, and he was there for 10 days. And very interestingly, uh, the stigma from the community towards my husband and myself was unbelievable. There were two physicians, and you know, we must have done something incredibly wrong uh, here. And, but we didn't get one call, uh, one meal. Now, he and I were driving down to Keene, and I had a uh, like probably that age six-year-old um, who was like just going to my best friend so and, and it's not like people didn't know I right. mean we didn't go blabbing it right but, you know it's right. like oh my son you know yeah but it was just unbelievable yeah. like it was so eye-opening yeah. that people in that regard like I don't know if it's they didn't know what to do like people would avoid us right you know, going into Dana Witz, like no one would, I mean, it was just, yep. I felt so ostracized from my community. And then, you know, two, two years later, something, one of the little boys gets, unfortunately, broken leg when he's in the hospital. Oh my gosh, the flowers, the cards from the kids, yeah. the, the meals to the family, like everything. Yeah. And I thought, isn't that interesting? My son was hospitalized for 10 days and nothing. Yep. Um, yep. And, and it was, you know, it's really sad. That's horrifying. It, it's, it is. Mental illness just isn't treated yep. the same. Yeah, and, and so sometimes people will come to me for advice. They'll say, oh, you know, my my best friend's son is in the, in, in the psychiatric unit. I, what, what do I do? And I said, well, send them flowers, and then, you know, call your best friend and just ask how, how it's doing and if they need help, like if, you know, any other illness. So, um, you know, I think I've been studying stigma a long time, and I think it's starting to get a little bit better. There's still a lot of stigma, obviously, um, but um, I think a lot of people want to help, but the discomfort or the fear or whatever, oh, I don't want to embarrass the parent, you know, I don't want them to know that I know. Um, it's because we don't have a way, we don't have a protocol for dealing with a new cancer or anything else. So, you know, the more protocols we can put in place or the more expectations of, well, of course, you're going to calm how the parents are doing. And the more we do that, obviously, the better it's going to get. Well, thank you for sharing that story. Uh, sad, good example of stigma by association. Yes. Um, so some effects on family members and caregivers. I don't think I can describe it better than what you just did. Um, 
but more stigma by association, obviously, the parent blamed for causing the child's mental illness. Um, sometimes you'll see family members or caregivers or significant others get blamed if, if a client doesn't follow the treatment plan. Like the client, services to people picking up either psychiatric meds, psychotropic meds, or cardiac meds. And what this research found was that uh, way more counseling services were given to people picking up the cardiac meds. Um, and pharmacists also said that sometimes they were uncomfortable talking to people who were picking up psychiatric medications. Um, so the reasons they gave for this, they said, well, in school, you know, pharmacy school, they never learned how to talk to people. Um, other pharmacists said, you know, we'd like to give medication counseling, but it's not, it's not a confidential setting, so we don't want to talk about vilify, you know, this is um, So there are different reasons why that happens. Psychiatrists. So I always call this the what could possibly go wrong slide. So, this study um, was, a, was a survey that was sent to all members of, I think it was the Michigan Psychiatric Society or something. And it had actually like a 70% response rate, which is pretty impressive. Um, but it asked psychiatrists that if they were experiencing depression, would they seek treatment? Almost half said they would, they, they would be more likely to treat themselves than to seek treatment. That's the possibly go wrong. Um, and then this study also showed that I think 15% of this, the sample had already either were currently or had already treated themselves. So stigma can affect medical students, um, not a huge surprise. So this study uh, asked medical students if they would seek treatment, mental health treatment. Some said that they would not. Some would, some would not, because they didn't want to appear weak. And obviously, um, to fear about affecting their career path. Um, yeah, you know, um, yeah. in terms of, I, I work with students, uh, Dartmouth students, and that was huge on the list um, for the Dartmouth students, saying that um, many, many of them uh, would like to seek counseling for mental illness. But there were a lot of barriers, and one of them was that they couldn't get time 
because they could get time off of rotation, and what were they going to say? Oh, I really need to go. Right. You know, right. But there, there was a ton of stigma associated, and they were so scared. Yep. And they were just floundering in either depression or anxiety, or you know, you can imagine yep. in medical school, and then having all this happening. So that's that's bigger than I think we right. We know. So that's a, a structural stigma, different type of stigma. Yeah. Definitely a structural issue that could potentially be addressed. Um, and there is some, you know, there's research out there that shows that there are a lot of depressed medical students. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, suicide rate is higher than the average population for medical students, especially for women. I have, in my medical school class, um, a woman committed suicide my freshman year, uh, and that was at Hershey, and there was only a hundred of us, and it was just absolutely devastating. Um, so it's, I mean, it's, it's there. Yep. Okay, so this, I'm going to have good news in a minute, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be giggling away. Okay, so this, uh, this study looked at uh, stigma by association in behavioral health professionals. And it was behavioral health professionals, I think, in a community mental health setting. And what I love about this study, it didn't only, they not only studied the therapist, but they studied the therapist's clients. So what they found was therapists who experienced stigma by association for working with the crazy people, uh, it wasn't a huge amount, but the people who did experience it felt less job satisfaction a greater sense of depersonalization with their clients, uh, more emotional exhaustion, I call that burnout. Um, but the most fascinating thing for me was the therapists who expressed experiencing stigma by association were more likely to have clients who experienced self-stigma. That's just fascinating to me. I, I would love to have that, um, see more, you know, more of that kind of research done. Um, you know, is that a fluke or is that something is, you know, is, is the therapist feeling stigmatized because of the stigma the client feels or vice versa or just, I just, all right, nurses, couple, couple slides about nurses. Um, so there, I turned down a few journal articles from nursing journals that specifically address stigma. If you want to read just one article about nurses and stigma, I would suggest this one, Ross and Goldner, because it's a, it's a lip review of the nursing journals and stigma. Um, but essentially, uh, it, it talked about two different themes that they picked, on, picked up on throughout literature review. So the first theme was nurses can be stigmatized. Now, I know no one here is a stigmatizer, but um, in, the, in the literature, what it found was nurses sometimes stigmatized by um, fear or, I should say, or hostility. Oh, fear of and hostility towards people with mental illness. That's one way nurses can stigmatize. Um, nurses sometimes devalue the, the psychiatric aspects of their job responsibilities. So that would be not a psychiatric nurse, but someone who works in the ER, oh, I don't want the borderline. Um, oftentimes, Nurses who don't specialize in psychiatric care don't, were never taught the skills to meet the needs of psychiatric patients. Um, and then some research shows that some nurses are a bit more pessimistic about a person with mental illness, their ability to recover, just from the general public. Um, but obviously, nurses can also be stigmatized. 
So, Trinner has a mental illness and a, or a substance abuse disorder. There's all different types of stigma that one would experience, self-stigma being one of them. Um, and then a lot of people view psychiatric nursing as just less prestigious than other types of nursing. And there's some good research out there that shows that in nursing schools, a lot of nursing students don't want to specialize in psychiatric nursing. And I think the number one reason is fear of violence. Okay, how much do you use? <laughs> so the good news is, there, in the, like I said earlier, in the last 10 years, there's been sort of an explosion of stigma research. Unfortunately, a lot of it has just been proving that stigma exists and not the interventions. Um, but in the last few years, there have been more intervention studies. So we don't have enough data to say we have evidence-based practices yet for stigma interventions. but um, kind of the level before that, we definitely have promising practices. And um, what we know, what we know currently to be the most effective intervention for public stigma. So again, public stigma is the most research. So all of these interventions are public stigma <clears throat> interventions. Uh, so what we know to be the most effective uh, intervention, time after time, study after study, is having contact with someone who's in recovery from MLS or substance. That is the most effective way. It's a bit more effective when it's in person, but it still has some effectiveness, like if it's on, on video. Um, so this is why I disclose that I've struggled with depression at the beginning of the training, because I hope that by now you view me as someone who's successfully managing or in recovery um, from depression. That's, that's key, because if you have uh, contact with someone who is kind of perpetuating stereotypes, that's not effective. Um, one thing is the only age group that it appears contact is the most effective strategy uh, to use is for some reason adolescents. Like I said, that makes sense. Uh, adolescents actually, um, the research available shows that education is more effective. Contact is effective for them, but not as effective as education. Um, for everyone else, though, education is the second most um, effective intervention. Um, and there's more research now being done on what's called contact-based education. So I kind of, like, I think the, this grand rounds is a contact-based education, because hopefully you, I'm educating you. Um, you're educating me, too. Um, but also the contact. Um, part of the intervention I think is important. And that's actually why I did put together this um, this training. It was hopefully being thoughtful, um, thinking, all right, I'm someone who I'm comfortable talking about recovering from a mental illness. And also, I like research. So hopefully, um, anyone who attends will at least um, not think or not be more stigmatizing, I guess. OK, so another intervention that's sometimes used, which is not effective, hence the capitalization here, it's called protest. Some people think of it as advocacy. Um, but that means that, say you work with a doctor who always says really negative things about people with substance use disorders. The protest would be you going to that doctor and saying, hey, you're being a jerk, you're discriminating. So maybe that's true, 
But what the research shows is that that can actually make things worse and cause, I think they call it a rebound effect. So that doctor might be, well, I'll show you. you know? um, so protest, sometimes protest is effective if enough people get together and use it. Um, but I put this slide in here because you just, as you're thinking about you know, leaving here and decreasing stigma in your workplace, protest might not be the best way to go about it. In the final intervention slide, um, social marketing campaigns. Um, so what we know is that if you want to put a reducing stigma, anti-stigma campaign together, there are several things that, several components that need to happen for it to be effective. Um, it needs to be targeted. So if I say um, the Chamber of Commerce wanted an anti-stigma program, Probably I wouldn't be the best person to go do it. So a worker would be someone from the business community. Um, needs to be local. The, the trainer has to be credible or the, the information has to be credible. Being continuous is very important. So obviously that means more than, more than once you have to hear about the information or have, have contact with the person successfully managing mental illness. And that's the last, the last thing to be effective. Uh, effective campaigns have to include contact with people successfully managing mental illness and substance use. Yes, I mean, I, I think I think of the the whole thing that we're talking about right now, the most active um, event that's happening right now. I think, and I, it's the state of Vermont mm -hmm. that is take it's the doctor up in close to Burlington that dealt with all these um, kids that were abused on a, a significant opiate abuse and they're on the road going educating all communities and Great. schools and I know they've come to educate the doctors mm -hmm. and there's a, a video I, I want to say it's helping, helping hands or something but that is just and the governor's actually it's been on CNN that's right and it's it's just a profound example of what we're talking that's about awesome. education and reducing yep. the stigma and attacking the problem right and that's what's going to do it and didn't didn't I read that the Vermont governor's spent Yes. A lot of his address? Yes. 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 Cool. All right. Okay. I have a question. Yeah. How could you do it on, on a more individual basis? Like, I, I came into a predicament with that and um, in one of the units, and I, I felt like, you know, I'm thinking, well, we're all adults here, and I just right. put it out of my head, like, well, that's not my beliefs. Right. Should I have said something? Like, I, you know, I'm thinking, how, yeah. how far do I go? I know. Um, and what, like, what? I, I just kind of cut to the chase and said, yeah. I, I really want to know about the patient. Like, yeah. I really need yep. to know about dad and right. Yeah, and that's, like, that's everything. Right. Everything. So. Yeah, and it's so. There's no right or wrong answer, and it's so hard because you don't know how a person is going to respond. Right. And I've done and that exactly. Like educated. Right. Or my. Right. 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 Or yeah. I did right. that. What am I, doing? I did that one time in a team meeting, and that and. The psychiatrist I did it to would was not happy with me um, for saying, you know, I'm not sure how what you're saying is helpful to the patient. Yeah. <laughs> not super threatening, I didn't think, but so um, so what I would suggest is, um, you know, if you have a supervisor talking in supervision about, you know, this this happened, how should I, 
how should I have handled it? Or um, obviously a hospital-wide policy protocol would be great. That doesn't exist anywhere yet. Um, but it's but it's so hard, and you have to take it case by case because sometimes you can't help you know saying anything. Right, and it's really all over. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we're like healthcare professionals, yes. but it's really all yeah. over. Oh, and, absolutely. Uh, yes. Yeah. Does anyone else have a response to that? Any suggestions? It's so hard. Okay, so some recommendations, last couple of slides. Recommendations for nurses, again, from the nursing journals. Um, so nurses, I didn't find this out until I worked in a hospital setting. Nurses move the world. They run, pretty much run the world, right? Um, so nurses are trusted professionals. Um, to use that, that trust and that role as a trusted professional to advocate for reduction of stigma in all different settings, faith communities, obviously workplace, schools, um, and use your role as, as the person who sometimes kind of runs, runs things and um, in the workplace to try to facilitate discussions between the different health disciplines. Um, now this one is, I always talk about this, but no one ever does it. Um, if you're successfully managing a mental illness or substance use disorder, Consider carefully if you're willing to speak openly, disclose. Because we know, obviously, that's the most effective way of reducing stigma. Um, it's, I've been speaking openly about dealing with depression, you know, very severe depression. NECT, you know, doesn't get more stigmatizing than that, but I just decided many years ago, I'm not gonna be ashamed. And that actually was quite freeing. Doesn't mean it's not uncomfortable to talk about it sometimes, but, um, Managing stigma by secrecy, called secrecy coping, is really draining. So um, once you don't have to do that anymore, it's kind of free. Um, so this, considering disclosure, was not my recommendation. It's from this journal article here. Um, some final recommendations. Have a plan, we kind of talked about this. Have a protocol to effectively address stigma in the workplace when it arises. Um, again, I think that goes back to um, try to assess your own attitudes and behaviors. Probably um, something that would be helpful. And um, one article talks about trying to incorporate stigma into supervision, make it a normal topic. Also, I think about um, make it a normal topic in in uh, group meetings or um, you know rounds in the morning. You know. Anyone witness any anything that might be detrimental to the patient based on attitudes? Um, now, I include this slide because we didn't talk much about assessment tools. There are a million stigma assessment tools. If anyone's interested in learning more about any of them, email me and I'll send you lots of information. Um, one negative thing is there aren't a lot of well validated stigma tools. There's one stigma tool. And there's one internalized or self-stigma scale that's really well validated and it's been translated into many um, languages that, that people use. But it seems like every researcher makes up their own assessment. Um, so, but this one I include because it's, I'm pretty excited about it. It's specific to measuring attitudes in healthcare practitioners. 
And this is a um, big initiative in Canada. Uh, last few years, they decided to put a whole lot of money, the government's putting a whole lot of money into prevention, um, studying So this particular tool, the OMSHC, it still needs further validation. Um, it's pretty well validated, but it's, I think the, the authors conclude that it's a good start. I call it better than nothing. Um, I took it, I took the assessment, I sympathized a little bit still. Um, but if you're interested in this, this is available online and email me and I'll, and I'll get it to you. Okay, goals. So my goal for you, do you feel like you're better prepared to effectively identify and address the say no. Great. So here's my contact information. It's my Yahoo account. Um, feel free to email and say, with follow-up questions, or if you do, like I said, if you want a PDF of, of the PowerPoint handout, I'll send that to you. Um, but what I'd like to do at the end, we have a few minutes, uh, is to talk about how you might kind of go back to your workplace and do things a little bit differently in terms of addressing stigma. Did you get any ideas from any of the research or any of the discussion today? If we finish, you have to go out and pull, so. <laughs> yes? In the work that I do, it's not so much working with the patients, yep. but um, being in groups of individuals mm -hmm. who are needing to make policy decisions, needing to change practice, yep. and face a stigma of their colleagues, not not of patients, yeah. but you know, of stereotyping colleagues by this person's a nurse, therefore they will this, right. or this person is a psychiatric yep. nurse, therefore yep. they're there, sure. or they're a doc and therefore they're this. Um, any comments about how you redirect that, you know, way that they hear you say, just because they're a whatever, right. doesn't mean that they evoke hold those beliefs or they have those right. attitudes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so hard. All the research shows it's very hard to change attitudes. So figuring out the best way to change behaviors. Um, so that usually takes leadership, so from top down. And I think you know if you have a, a doctor that's stigmatizing a nurse, then probably the most effective thing is to find a doctor who gets it, to have a conversation with that doctor, you know. Or um, you know, the more people who are higher up, who are, you know, scared, oh, I might lose my job if I do that again type of thing. Um, you know, that, that can change behavior. Um, if there's a new hospital-wide policy that says, all right, we've identified this as a problem, these behaviors as a problem, here's how we want you to now do these behaviors um, in a different way. And, you know, if it, I always suggest, you know, writing it into a job description or the expectation when the person is, um, what's it called when you get a review? Performance eval. Have stigma on everybody's performance eval. Um, so, so you're not just identifying one person, you're saying, okay, this is a new part of everybody's, this is something that we're looking at for everyone. Um, because the more you kind of focus on one person, the more threatening it is, and it's kind of like you know using the scary words of prejudice and discrimination. Want to figure out how to make it more gentle. So we want to change attitude. Um, I'm not sure if that's helpful. 
And it's not easy, obviously, or we'd all be doing it already, you know, but um, if, you, if you think of any, anything that you think would be helpful, email me and let me know. Um, but, you know, again, the more people that you can kind of bring into the conversation, um, it, the more effective it's going to be. And it's probably a very kind of local thing that you want to think about, because um, I'm sure this hospital would be different than common hospitals. Anything else? Well, I thank you all for your participation and for showing up. And uh, stay warm. And that's it. Thank you. Thanks.